0: Welcome to the Podglomerate. This is Status, the show about how immigration impacts people. For as long as I've known him, Jonathan has been talking about writing a book. He says he could never write it himself, but he wants to find someone to interview him and write down his life story. He's tried a couple of times, but it all wants to flood out of him at once and he ends up giving up pretty early on. If it were anyone else, I'd wonder if what the world really needed was another memoir from someone who thought their life was interesting enough to publish. But I know Jonathan. And I know his story. It's a story he told me after our third date at one of my favorite bars in Tulsa. He hates when I bring up that night, especially when I say it's the night that I fell for him. He doesn't like people to feel sorry for him, Or to pity him. And I don't. This isn't the place to say why, but I know what it's like to have people feel sorry for you for a tragic past that was out of your control. And that's why, when Jonathan told me his story, I knew we were a match. He could handle my drama without a sweat. Not only did he understand and empathize, but he could do that and move past it. Into the next date. Into love into our life together. Into understanding. And I agree with him. His story deserves to be told. And look, I don't write books. That's not my game. But I do make podcasts. And largely due to loving him, the stories I tell are often about people like him. So if you'll have me, I'd like to tell you the story of the man I love. And this is part one. Columbia. Just a warning before we get started, this episode goes to some very dark places very early on. If you prefer or need to avoid stories and descriptions of physical and sexual abuse, I encourage you to skip this episode or at least jump forward about 15 minutes.
1: I was born in Bogota, Colombia. I grew up with my biological father and sisters, and my mom died at a very early age. I was about a year old. Um... My biological father kind of like buried himself with her. He just got into alcohol and drugs and stuff like that. And you know, we have seven. It was seven of us. I was at the, at the time. I had six sisters and one, uh, five sisters and one brother. And it was hard not knowing what our future was gonna be.
0: Jonathan was the youngest of the family, and because his father couldn't be trusted to do it, his siblings took care of him.
1: They were always very overprotective of me when I was younger. Um, they always took a like I always got the most food because they thought that I was the smallest one and therefore I needed to eat more. So I grew up a little bit chubby. They took care of me. I was a younger one, so I was very nurtured and shelter until I was about five and a half. Um
0: the ways Jonathan's siblings protected him extended into territory that most people can't even imagine.
1: So, like, at one point or another, um, my biological father ended up in jail for some reason. I don't know about it, and we all ended up like being taken care of by this lady at a I say like a preschool type of thing. I know it sounds weird, but it's like we were sleeping there, we we're living there, and then one night. Uh, my sisters apparently overheard that I was going to be sold out to somebody somebody else. And so what they did is like they all like picked me up that night and then we ran away in the middle of the night. It was just like one of those weird things.
0: Just one of those weird things.
1: When I was about six years old, I usually went out and, you know, like kind of... Go asking for food to every place, uh, bakeries and things like that, and like usually the bakers always gave us like the old bread that they were about to throw away, um, the bread that sat there for like four or five days, and we just like I went and picked it up and we took it home and like that was our food for the next week. So it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a tough experience. It was, um, you know, I mean, I was doing whatever I needed to do, but at the same time, it's like every time I went back home. It was that risk of being caught by my biological father um, and get, uh, you know, get beaten up. Um, We grew up kind of like in a very abusive household. And um, I still have scars on my back. And just remembering that brings a lot of like, you know, like painful memories of growing up. Yeah, uh, sorry. I was tired of being physically abused and I was just like not having it. And the first time that I ran away was more of a, like, I want to see if the streets are better or I want to see if another place is better. And I kind of felt a little bit safer in the streets because I was able to do what I wanted to do. And nobody was going to judge me and nobody was going to hit me and nobody was going to, like, do anything to me while I was there. I didn't, I mean, I want to correct myself. I didn't necessarily run away. I just started spending more time on the streets um, than at home. And I guess you can call that running away, but it's like, um, I felt safer in the streets. Went and saw my sisters during like you know during the day when my biological father was not at home and you know i took them food um but as soon as my biological father was coming home i just kind of like disappear yeah i ran away but i was always present there because i was always afraid of my sisters getting beat up or you know anything happening to them
0: so you were going home but you were sleeping on the street
1: tonight yeah it kind of like that's how it started i slept at a friend's house for one night and then um, I just lived on the streets after that for a little bit and then went back home. And of course, when my biological father found me, it was just a beating, a waiting to be there.
0: As you can imagine, that abuse stuck with Jonathan in some painful ways.
1: When anybody um, grabs my neck, automatically brings a very painful memory of every time that I ran away from home and every time that I tried to escape the physical abuse and every time my biological father found me, he always put his hand on my neck very tight as kind of like I felt like a collar in the back of my neck and I felt as a kind of like, not a prisoner per se, but like somebody that could not run away because if I ran away, I felt like my neck was going to crack in half. And so like even now as an adult, as a 33-year-old man, Anybody that puts their hands on my neck, I automatically, like, that comes back to life. And it's something that I've tried to, you know, come in terms with, but I just do not want to feel constrained in any way. Especially when somebody put their hand in the back of a neck, whether it is, like, for love or whether it is, like, you know, they want to scratch or anything like that. It's, like, it's just automatically I get that defensive and it's just not a good way. Like, I just don't... It brings... It brings some of the most painful memories that I've had in my life.
0: What did your sisters do to escape the abuse?
1: I mean, for any Latin America family, as soon as we grew a little bit older, they all kind of started like getting boyfriends and, you know, kind of like trying to start a family that way because it was the easy way out. It was the way that, you know, it was one of the ways for them to kind of be like, I need to move out. I have a boyfriend. I can move on. And I think that's the. That, that's one of the main reasons a lot of my sisters had their first kids when they were 14 and 15. So um, it was just an easy way for us to move away from what we were living on an everyday basis.
0: How long after you started disappearing for periods of time did it take for you to just like not come back home?
1: Was it, four months? Um, I remember very well this day because that night, um, the night before I actually ran away for a long time was when my biological father found me. And I remember this very well because I still have scars on my back from it. And it's that he Took me up to the house. And in front of the house, there was a tree. And he tied me to the tree and he beat me up there. And that was like one of the worst things that I could ever experience. Um, I think that night was the night that triggered me to kind of like not wanting to be there. I didn't feel love. I didn't feel anything. I felt... I didn't even cry that night. It was I had I had blood all over my body um from the scars. He he built his own whip out of cables and he put poison ivy on them to beat us up. And that's one of the things that I'm like very much like that night was a triggering point That night was I told myself that If I was ever Let go from that tree I will never go back to that house And that's what I did I lived in the streets i lived in um i lived in different places in bogota one of the places that i lived was like um something called we call it cartucho which was a very dangerous place back um in the 90s um that's where all the drill drug dealings were done that's where like if you wanted to find drugs you'll do it there um if you wanted something done there um it was a very dangerous place, but at the same time, it's like I lived there and I had friends there because I feel safer and I needed to survive. And that's how I started doing drugs when I was, um, when I was seven.
0: You said, when you talked about doing drugs, you said to me every time you've ever told me that you did it to survive. And I don't know what that means.
1: What it means is that I did it because I was in an environment where if you didn't do them, you were not tough. Where if you didn't do them, you actually did not care about the people that you were around. It was a way for you kind of to feel connected with people. It was a way for you to, in the nights, like when it was really cold, you did drugs so that you can, you don't feel anything. Um, In the nights that it was rainy, you did drugs because you didn't want to worry about, you know, being damp or, um, Wet or anything like that. You just did it because it was just a way for you to be able to pass the night without having any repercussions on being sick or anything like that. um Well, I mean, in living the streets, you have to be tough because if you're not tough, then people are just gonna walk all around you. So it's like, I mean, you don't, you can, you can't just be the weakling because if you're the weakling, then they're gonna take advantage of you, um, very fast, very quickly. So you just wanted to make sure that you have that, like, personality that, you know, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back, and I'm going to hit you back twice as hard. There was no, there was no, like, oh, if you hit me, I'm just going to go cry in a corner. No, because it's like, if you did that, then other people will be like, oh, we can just, like, hit this guy anytime we want, and then he can just, like, take it anytime. And that's not the way it works.
0: Jonathan had to figure out a way to sustain himself on the streets. I went around and asked for money.
1: I cleaned cars. I, you know, took care of cars in Bogota. And every time I took care of a car, you know, some people brought me food. Some people gave me money. Um, It was just like a way for me to, you know, survive. Um, I stole. I stole food to eat because sometimes there was no food, so... Um but then when I made money, I usually just always always found a way to bring my family some food in one way or another, whether it was my biological father was there or like I just bring food and disappear. That's the way to do it. So there's a bunch of houses that have like little bed like kind of like little spaces where the doors usually go, but you have a little balcony there and one night I was sleeping in the balcony and I know that I noticed this drunk guy coming up and um and he just sat there talking to me and he's like hey let me take you home and you know I'll give you food and things of like that and I'm like okay you know I was I was seven seven and a half about eight um and then during the night like he started touching me and things like that so it was just like one of those things that I had no power of um that was like the second time that happened to me. Um, the first time was one of my father's or biological father's friend who took me on a trip, um, because apparently he just asked anybody to like, hey, I'm going to take your kid for a trip. And their parents just like, okay, it was one of those things that, I mean, you know, we're kids, I don't. I don't have any power of it, so um, we tried to tell him. He didn't care. He cared more about his friends than
0: anything else, so he didn't believe. Jonathan had left his father's home because the streets felt safer back then. But they didn't feel safe anymore. Um, There was a point in my life where
1: I do remember this very well. It was extremely high. Um, Not from doing weed or anything like that. It was from sniffing boxer glow. And I remember myself just walking in the middle of the highway. Don't know how. Don't know. Like, didn't even remember how I got there. I was just walking in the middle of the highway. And cars were just passing by, you know, left and right. And for some reason, something hit me in the head. And, like, not anything, like, physical, anything like that. It's, like, my head. just kind of, like, a light... Just like a bulb just lit up and um, I sober up very quickly and kind of like moved away from that. Um, Because I think that was like one of the lowest points um, that I've ever been. And I was only nine. So and that kind of like got me the idea of like, I can't do this. This is not for me. I need to seek help. I need to find something that, you know, it's going to take me away from here. My brother was the first one in our family to run away um, from home. He was the first one to go live in the streets. He was the first one to kind of like get away from that. And um, for me, I think one of the things that allowed me to move away from or run away from the house was the fact that one, I wanted to not feel any pain. I wanted to feel safe. Two, I wanted to find my brother. Um, I knew that my brother was in an orphanage back then and I wanted to find him. And then there was one time when I was just like cleaning cars. This is like one of the times that I just like wanted to find my brother and I was cleaning cars and I told a lady, read right, very well. She used to sell furniture and rugs in Bogota in a place called Boulevard Niza, which is like kind of like a high scale place. It's where like rich people at the time used to do, like used to go buy stuff. For me, they were rich people right um and i remember walking into this place and i remember asking the lady it's like hey um do you by any chance know how to contact or talk to these people i think my brother is there like about a day later she came back to me and she's like hey i I talked to them and they want you to go here um and see if they can take you to your brother i went to places that i did not know existed it's like it was just like way far north of bogota And I went to where the orphanage um, or the foundation had their headquarters. And I knocked on the door and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm Jonathan, I'm looking for my brother. And one of the ladies says like, oh, yeah, you're um, Hector Fernando's brother. And I'm like, how do you know? They're like, yeah, you guys look alike. They automatically got me in the car and they just drove me straight up way north of Bogotá in a little town called Kahika, which was the, where they kept an, a house for, you know, like, the foundation um, for them to kind of rehabilitate kids from the streets.
0: When they pulled up to the house, there was a group of boys standing outside. They
1: were actually in line to eat lunch. And I got out of the car, and out of the corner of my ass, my brother just, like, running towards me and he was really happy to see me and he was like excited to, you know, like have his brother there and things like that. And so it was just like, it was really nice finding my brother at the time.
0: Can you tell me the name of the foundation?
1: So in Spanish is Fundacion Niños de los Andes and in English is Children of the Andes Foundation or Foundation Children of the Andes, either way.
0: The foundation took Jonathan in and it quickly became his home. I was happy. I was, I was happy because I had found my brother
1: because I didn't have to feel that, you know, physical abuse because I had a plate of food on the table uh, because I didn't have to, you know, worry about, you know, sleeping when one night open to see like if I was going to survive the diet, the night, um, you know, it. I was happy because it's like in Bogota when I was leaving the streets, it's like wherever you felt really tired, that's where you fell asleep. It wasn't like, you know, oh, I'm, I have a house to go to or I have a bed to go to. It's like, no. It's like you literally sleep wherever. If you felt tired at 3, 4 a.m. in the morning, you fell asleep until either somebody walks you, w- wakes you up or you wake up by the sound of the cars. So that's pretty much it. So I felt happy because they... The foundation gave me a roof, it gave me food, it gave me friendships, it gave me, it allowed me to get an education at the beginning.
0: Now, Jonathan hadn't been to school in years.
1: He'd finished first grade, but only barely. They gave an exam to everybody. They gave you kind of like an exam of like your knowledge and where you were going to be. Like what grade you were going to be based on that standardized test because they didn't want it to put people that would, you know, like if you knew a lot of stuff and everything, they wanted to put you with people that were kind of at the same grade level. And so like on, I think my second week at the orphanage, they gave me a test. I knew how to multiply. I knew how to divide. I knew fractions. I knew a lot of different stuff that apparently kids on second grade don't know yet. My biological father kept um, 7th grade books at the house. And um, when I was at the house, this is even before 1st, 1st grade, I started reading those books and I started, you know, kind of like learning about science and mathematics and social sciences and biology. And I think by reading those books, not only they got me through 2nd, 3rd, and 4th grade very fast.
0: Jonathan's brother didn't like that the foundation let Jonathan skip straight to 5th grade. He has started being kind
1: of abusive in a way that you know like anger definitely was there he didn't understand why i was like getting all this attention and why i was you know like doing all these things for my for myself he was in fourth grade and then i passed him in school and so that's when he's like you know how the hell does my little brother um smarter than me and i think that creates that mentality of it like i'm not i can't have it i can't You know, I can't be the stupid one or I can't be the slow one. But at the same time, he is still like anybody ever kind of like messed with me or anything like that. Um, He was always just standing in front of me and like, you know, defending me in in every possible
0: way. Despite his brother's jealousy, Jonathan made the best of his chance at an education.
1: I fell in love with school then because I like I wanted to. That kind of like opened the opportunity for me to be somebody. And I didn't want it to go back to the streets. I didn't want it to go back anywhere. I just wanted to like continue like, you know, finishing school and doing everything I could to like graduate.
0: The foundation had quickly become a home for Jonathan. He had his brother there, even if their relationship was strained. He had new friends, and he was getting to have fun and get an education. The people at the foundation were giving him more opportunity than he'd ever had. But everyone at the foundation was about to lose something.
1: We were all having a wonderful night one night, and then when we were, like, watching a movie or something like that, we hear um, somebody scream fire. And um, there were the girls' room, and they were having their meeting, and one of their um, one of their comforters caught fire. Thank, thankfully enough, you know, nothing happened to her or anything like that. But it's like everybody was evacuated from the house. And when we came out to the side of the house, there was um, we used to collect tires and we used to collect that because they wanted us to learn about how to be mechanics and things like that. And all these plastic just went up in flames. And through that. Um, Plastic, um, the whole house burned down. It was one of those things that I, we could not um, get anything. We could not go back and find it. Um, we went back a couple of years after to see how it was, and it was very devastating for us because it was our home, and it got like caught fire, and it was never restored to like his original form or anything like that. Um, we don't know what started the fire some people said that you know like there was a lot of different speculations I don't know the final um, verdict of what started the fire but I remember that night very well we all walked towards like the center of the town that we were in and bus just came back and forth and they took us to another house up in the mountains where it was really cold Um, like on the other side of Bogota it was really really cold and we went to this house and i remember going to bed that night and i was tired i was crying we were all crying it was like the most devastating night that we had because our house had burned down um and then they took us to another big house and i remember going to bed like at the time they didn't they didn't have enough beds there so it was just like two kids per bed and i remember going to bed with another kid and then waking up and my brother was at my feet sleeping next to me.
0: After the fire, the kids had to get used to their new home. It was crowded at first. The second house wasn't meant to hold this many people. But eventually, that part got figured out. The kids went back to school, they made new friends, and life got started again. Among other things, the foundation taught the children skills that they thought would help them get jobs. There were all sorts of movie nights and other fun activities. The kids took acting and dancing lessons. And occasionally, celebrities even dropped by. There was, I think it was Colombian fashion, and
1: they chose to do a fashion show to get money for the orphanage. And in 1997, we actually got to model some clothes for some of the designers in Colombia. This is before Shakira, like, you know, became a huge multi-platinum, like, international star. Um, she was one of the main um, singers there. And it was Carlos Vives, which is, like, a very famous Colombian singer. And then it was Shakira, and I think there was something else. And one of my favorite things is that I got to give flowers to Miss Colombia back then. And I also got to dance with Shakira, which at the time, it was, she seemed so tall, I was so tiny. Um, and we got to dance. so that was one of like the coolest things that I've, I would not have had if I was not in the orphanage. So so Shakira might not remember that, but I do. <laughs> and um,
0: it's a good memory. That, that was a really good memory. Shakira is still one of Jonathan's favorite singers. He's got all of her music on his iPhone. I know. We've been on more than one road trip together. Anyway, when he wasn't dancing with future superstars, Jonathan was making friends with the women who ran the kitchen. Um,
1: I got the opportunity to kind of like, I don't want to say work in the kitchen. It was more like go and help the kitchen ladies out. And so like I got... I got to spend a lot of time in the kitchen and I learned how to cook for 150 people at a time, 200 people at a time. So we were making rice, we were making eggs, we were making everything that we could think of. Um, We had cows back then and we got to milk the cows in the morning. Um, We made our own cheese. It was really fun. We got a donation of like 957 ducks. And it was duck for breakfast, duck for lunch, duck for dinner. And because I was I was part of the kitchen, so we had to, you know, like, kind of, like, kill the dogs and, like, you know, twist their necks or whatever. I don't know. It was weird. Um, twist their necks and kind of, like, put them in hot water so, like, all the feathers will, um, you know, kind of, like, come out a lot easier. One of the people that was working the kitchen with me um, accidentally ripped the head off the, of the duck and then threw it in hot water. And as soon as they hit hot water, the duck just jumped out and started running in circles. And... Uh, we have not even tasted a duck whatsoever, and I knew for a fact that I do not like wanted to eat ducks. And it is today, when I'm t- 33 years old, that I can say I have not had duck since I was about 10, and I refuse to eat it because every time I look at ducks, that's just like the memory that comes to, and I'm like, nope, not for me.
0: Activities and education were core parts of what the foundation offered the children who lived there. And as important were the people there to support the children. There was Jaime, the founder of the foundation. And there was his wife, Patricia.
1: Um, And so she was kind of like our mom. She was, uh, anytime we needed something, she always got the donations. She got all the food. She got everything sent to us. Um, And so she was just like really cool. I mean, I call her mom to this day and she loves me. And I mean, me and her daughter... Alejandro are really, really good friends.
0: Jonathan was baptized while at the foundation, and he asked one of his teachers to be his godmother.
1: So my godmother was actually my ceramics teacher at the orphanage. She was the one that taught us how to, like, create vases and everything, and, like, that's how I got to be an artist. That's how I started
0: being an artist, because of my godmother. The skills his godmother taught him extended beyond ceramics. He drew very well. And later on, he'd start painting. These talents would end up shaping his path when he was an adult. But hold on, we'll get there. What the foundation did and does for Jonathan and the other children it served is remarkable. In Jonathan's case, it was positive and life-altering. But while most parts of that new life were great, other realities of living with hundreds of children still bother him.
1: I hate things with labels with a passion i hate it i hate anything that says my name on it and the fact that i have to write a number on my T-shirt. and this is why right now i I'm, I'm like weirded at work when people put names on everything i was in the same room with 45 beds on one room but it was a big room Um, And so it's like doing laundry for 45 kids one by one. It's not worth it. So what they did is like every time we had dirty laundry, they took all the clothes and and they did it in a huge like industrial watcher. And then they put it on one bed and then they started, you know, handing out. So like you had a number and I remember really well, my number was 107. Um, And so everything was 107. Everything. I didn't have my name on it. It was just like 107. It kind of made it a little bit more uniform for them. But for me, it was like, now that I'm an adult, I'm like, I just don't like anything labeled. I'm not a number. This French lady, um, she came to the orphanage and, you know, they did a lot of like community service and things like that. And this French lady had adopted two girls from Colombia. She adopted them when they were like one year old. So like, you know, this is their mom forever. And I remember really well that their daughters liked me so much that they wanted her mom, their mom to adopt me.
0: When I asked Jonathan to tell me his favorite memory from his time at the foundation, this was the story he chose. Shakira came second. When he talks about the French woman and her daughters, he smiles the whole time. He told me that around the time he met them, his friend Alberto had just come back from a year in France and that he used to walk around with a French-Spanish dictionary and practice his French with Alberto. As far as I can tell, this is a genuine, if spectacular, coincidence. Jonathan and the French woman bonded over this period of time. I just know that at one point I wanted to call her mom. (laughs) And she made it clear that she wanted that as well. But first, she needed to take a trip back to France to get things in order. I'm not sure if it's 100% accurate, but what
1: I believe and what I thought, like in my mind, what I've always believed, I believe that she went back to France to just like see if she could start the paperwork to adopt me.
0: But Jonathan wouldn't be there when the French woman returned. Status is produced by me, Matt Horton. Music was provided by Ben Mitchell and Breakmaster Cylinder. Status is a proud member of the podglomerate. Hear part two of Jonathan's story in two weeks. Thanks for listening.